afternoon, good evening, hello, wherever and whenever you are, and welcome to a special edition of Ink and Ash. And boy, it has been a long time since you've heard from me here on this feed, and you may have wondered if you're not currently a patron whether I've hung up the microphone for good. Well, I've got good news on that front. Season 4 is currently in production. The less good news is that it's not ready to be released just yet, but I've got lots of good stuff on the horizon. There's some new reviews that I'll read and some new patrons at patreon.com slash inkandashpod that I'll shout out on the next regularly scheduled episode, but I have to be quick today because it's early Monday morning right now. In just a little bit, I'll be heading out of town for work. In fact, you may hear my dog clicking around in the background because uh, he's all anxious that I'm uh, up this early and recording. Anyway, before I go, I wanted to let you know about this year's live stream for The Cure and I'm going to have last year's segment for you once I finish this intro here, uh, which includes a story from Neil Gaiman, so stay tuned for that. But first, to tell you more about this year's event and a little bit more about Livestream for the Cure in general, here is my friend and the organizer of Livestream for the Cure, Nick Haskins. Not a year goes by that I don't hear about someone that I'm close to battling against cancer. Hello everyone, my name is Nick and I'm the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity event going into its sixth year to help raise money for the Cancer Research Institute to fight for a future immune to cancer. This year, we're aiming for $20,000 starting on the 19th of May. We'll be live for over 45 hours of amazing content from people all over the world. It's going to be such a wonderful time. Please mark your calendars and please help us spread the word. The only way we can reach more people is with your likes, your shares, your comments, your engagement whenever and wherever you see the event online. Together, we truly can make a difference. Let's fight together for a future where we don't have to hear stories about loved ones, family, and friends battling against cancer. Please join us May 19th in our fight for hope. So now that you know a little bit more about what the event is all about, let me tell you what I'm doing this year. I've got some stories by H.P. Lovecraft that I'm going to read, and I'm also going to have some spicy snacks on hand. At certain donation increments, I'll be eating different spicy foods and then narrating the next story. Will I still be able to keep my narrative integrity? Well, there's only one way to find out. Tune in to Livestream for the Cure at 9 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time this Saturday night. That's May 21st. You can tune in at twitch.tv slash livestreamforthecure. There's also a link in the show notes for the show. And one more thing, I'll also be in a second segment this year, hosted by my good friend Moxie Labouche over at the Your Brain on Facts podcast, in which I'll be participating in a trivia contest with Julio from the Contrarians podcast and Drew from the Real Feels podcast. Now, if you're a patron of any of the four of those shows, you probably recognize that cast of characters as the regular hosts of Spot the Lie. That segment will be live at twitch.tv slash livestream for the cure starting at 9 a.m. Saturday morning. That's this Saturday morning again, May 21st. 9 a.m. for the trivia, 9 p.m. for the stories. 
Now, I haven't done a great job of promoting the show this year, so I hope everyone has kept me in their podcast feeds and that this is a nice surprise ahead of next season going live. So with all that being said, remember, tune in to Livestream for the Cure and help with whatever you can spare to donate to the cause. And even if you're not able to donate at this time, it still helps to tune in. It'll get the show more visibility, and the more people who know, the more people will have who are in a position where they can help out financially. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you in advance for watching this Saturday, and stay tuned for Season 4 coming soon. I'll be back with details on that before you know it. And without further ado, here is last year's Livestream for the Cure segment. Hope you enjoy I want everybody to prepare themselves right now. So get yourself, get a, get a nice, warm, cozy blanket wrapped around yourselves. Grab yourself a nice, warm glass of, of whatever. Sean's just stroking his beard in here. I love it. Well, so Sean. That's... <laughs> but, uh, you know, get yourself ready to be wrapped in the absolute decadence of the Velvet Drizzle himself, Sean Ennis of Ink and Nicholas Askins. Oh, I love this guy's voice. Me too. Good, good night, guys. Take care. Good night, Sean. Thank you. <laughs> I love your voice, dude. Thank you, brother. Ooh. Uh, Mr. Ennis, uh, I'm going to... You're a little low. Let me see if I can boost you up. Oh. I'll boost myself up a little bit, too. There we go. Uh, uh, formerly stories of your and yours, finally rebranded. Even I, I, I feel like I really was the was the push behind that because you were like, eventually I'll be ink and ash, and I was like, nope, there's no more stories of your and yours. Rebrand or get out. It's true. Um, it's true. This is a true story. It happened. But uh, you, you're 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 a beautiful man. Your your velvety tones are just legendary, uh, and uh, you know you're a beautiful man. Uh, tell the people out there what you're all about. Well, folks, uh, what I do on my show uh, is called Ink and Ash, a short story podcast. I tell short stories or narrate short stories um, from authors you may have heard of and some that you may not have. I take listener submissions and uh, occasionally we'll add in some sound effects, some music and things like that just to uh, add a little spice to the game. Uh, so that's uh, that's the, that's the show in a nutshell. We usually oh, do a little I've got intro a lot of spice if you want that. You do a lot of spice. How is that? Um, so it's 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 just it's it's not like a like an unbearable heat but it just lingers it just hangs yeah. out on your palate for a, a good good while um but uh you and i mean this in, in absolutely all seriousness you are one of my favorite people in podcasting space or literally anywhere on the planet uh i love well, listening to your show uh i love uh i i, I, I and i miss doing it uh unfortunately i wasn't able to fit it into my schedule but i even love doing spot the lie with you we had moxie here I mean, it seems like an eternity ago when yeah. she was here on the kickoff night on wednesday um but uh tell no there's a there's a, a special thing that you're going to be reading tonight uh yes. so tell us a little bit about what you're going to be reading and how it came so about like, I'll, I'll give you i'll tell you a little bit about the segment tonight um so I, I asked uh, Neil Gaiman on Twitter. I, I saw that he occasionally uh, replies to uh, people who ask to do his material. So I, I sent him a, a tweet and uh, and said, hey, would you mind if I do Click Clack the Rattlebag for uh, live stream for the cure, raising money for cancer research, et cetera. And he got back and said, sure, go ahead and do it. So here we are. I'm going to do a Neil Gaiman story. Um, and then for the rest of the segment. Now I had, I'll tell you a little little bit of a peek behind this behind the curtain here. Uh, generally what I do before the live stream is I will, uh, I'll put my stories together and I'll practice them for like a week. Right. Because, you know, you don't want to flub. I don't want to flub anything when I'm in here. Um, 
and I was I was on the road this week. I was in Houston, and I, and I was reading through this story. I was going to do the Voice in the Night by William Hope Hodgson, which is a great story. Uh, but there was one of the voices in it was um, it wasn't it wasn't speaking to me the way I wanted it to. And on Thursday, I decided I was going to switch my stories. So now I have four stories ready to go tonight. I've practiced them once. <laughs> besides uh besides click back the rattlebag so we'll see how it goes we'll see how it goes and what i'm going to do is uh, i'll tell everybody uh what authors i have here um i'll definitely do the game and story um but i've got i've got three other authors that i'm going to do i'll leave it up to the chat and see which uh what we want to do first we may get through all four um there is enough time in the segment if if uh if i play my cards right um We'll see. We'll see how it goes. So yeah, ladies and gentlemen. So if you make donations during uh, the stories, I mean, I go. knew this was coming. Alan from Interrupted Tales. He said, "Let it rain down on me with a fifty-dollar donation." Now again, we have passed our initial goal of fifteen thousand, but we are pushing on, ladies and gentlemen, to seventeen five. Please, let's continue to fight for a future immune to cancer. But I'm not going to interrupt Sean with uh, any any shout-outs for any donations. So any donations that come in while he's reading stories, we'll do it after he finishes up. So that way we're not uh, we're not cutting him off because he can't hear the alerts. You guys can. So uh, I'll tell you what I've got here. I've got I've got Neil Gaiman, I've got H.B. Lovecraft, I've got Robert Block, and I've got um, uh, Guy de Maupassant. So uh, whatever you guys want to hear, uh, I can't see the chat either, Nick. So you have to keep me honest here. Let me know what people want to hear. And you got nineteen dollars and eighty-four cents from Mr. Chris Yaney. Thank you so so much. Uh, we already have one vote for Lovecraft in the chat. Another one from Drew. There's two votes for Lovecraft. Uh, interrupted tales. Uh, you know I love that Guy de, Mos- de-, Guy de Maupassant. I know he loves that one. Um, we've got two for Lovecraft, one for Guy. All I'm right. gonna Let's say, go why don't we do Lovecraft first, so that way we can start just off get with Lovecraft. Turned. We're gonna do it. Okay. So this uh, this story by Lovecraft that I have is called the Statement of Randolph Carter, and I can just I can just take it if you're ready, Nick. You are you are you are the floor is yours, my friend. All right, sir. Um, so the, uh, the, the story again is called the statement of Randolph Carter, and, uh, I'm going to get myself off my screen so I don't look at myself. I'm going to dim the lights here and, uh, just a little bit about this story. Usually I do a background on the author. I've done Lovecraft on the show before, so I didn't go into uh, great detail on that, but this story itself was written in December of 1919, first published in a publication called the Vagrant in 1920. The Vagrant is not a well-known magazine. I was only able to find records of it existing from 1918 to 1922. And during that time, I only saw four issued uh, issues published. I'm sure there were probably more, but I didn't see any record of them. Uh, and before he found a home in Weird Tales, Lovecraft published his stories in uh, amateur magazines, kind of like The Vagrant and other small publications. So here we go. And uh, one other note, uh, I tried to do a soundboard last year. Um, it didn't work out that well. I didn't try it this year partially because I changed my stories uh, two days ago. But here we go. The Statement of Randolph Carter by H.P. Lovecraft. I repeat to you, gentlemen, that your inquisition is fruitless. Detain me here forever, if you will. Confine or execute me, if you must. Have a victim to propitiate the illusion you call justice. But I can say no more than I have said already. Everything that I can remember, I have told with perfect candor. Nothing has been distorted or concealed, and if anything remains vague, it is only because of the dark cloud which has come over my mind, that cloud and the nebulous nature of the horrors which brought it upon me. Again, I say 
I do not know what has become of Harley Warren, though I think, almost hope, that he is in peaceful oblivion, if there be anywhere so blessed a thing. It is true that I have five, for five years been his closest friend, and a partial sharer of his terrible researches into the unknown. I will not deny, though my memory is uncertain and indistinct, that this witness of yours may have seen us together, as he says, on the Gainesville Pike, walking toward Big Cypress Swamp at half past eleven on that awful night. That we both bore electric lanterns, spades, and a curious coil of wire with attached instruments, I will even affirm, for these things all played a part in the single hideous scene which remains burned into my shaken recollection. But of what followed, and of the reason I was found alone and dazed on the edge of the swamp the next morning, I must insist that I know nothing save what I have told you over and over again. You say to me that there is nothing in the swamp or near it which could form the settling of uh, form the setting of that frightful episode. I reply that I knew nothing beyond what I saw. Vision or nightmare it may have been. Vision or nightmare I fervently hope it was. Yet it is all that my mind retains of what took place in those shocking hours after we left the sight of men. And why Harley Warren did not return, he or his shade, or some nameless thing I cannot describe, alone can tell. As I've said before, the weird studies of Harley Warren were well known to me, and to some extent shared by me. Of his vast collection of strange, rare books on forbidden subjects, I have read all that are written in the languages of which I am a uh, master. But there are, uh, these are few as compared with those in languages I cannot understand. Most, I believe, are in Arabic, and the fiend-inspired book which brought on the end, the book which he carried in his pocket out of the world, was written in characters whose like I had never seen elsewhere. Warren would never tell me just what was in that book. As to the nature of our studies, must I say again that I had no longer retained full comprehension. It, uh, it seems to me rather merciful that I do not, for they were terrible studies, which I pursued more through reluctant fascination than through actual inclination. Warren always dominated me, but sometimes I feared him. I remember how I shuddered at his facial expression on the night before the awful happening, when he talked so incessantly of this theory why certain corpses never decay, but rest firm and fat in their tombs for a thousand years. But I do not fear him now, for I suspect that he has known horrors beyond my ken. Now I fear for him. Once more, I say that I have no clear idea of our object that night. Certainly it had much to do with something in the book which Warren carried with him, that ancient book in undecipherable characters which had come to him from India a month before. But I swear, I do not know what, what it was that we expected to find. Your witness says he saw us at half-past eleven on the Gainesville Pike headed for Big Cypress Swamp. This is probably true, but I have no distinct memory of it. The picture seared into my soul is one is of one scene only, and the hour must have been long after midnight, for a waning crescent moon was high in the vaporous heavens. The place was an ancient cemetery, so ancient that I trembled at the manifold signs of immemorial years. It was in a deep, damp hollow, overgrown with rank grass, moss, and curious creeping weeds, and filled with a vague stench, which my idle fancy associated absurdly with rotting stone. On every hand were the signs of neglect and decrepitude, and I seemed haunted by the notion that Warren and I were the first living creatures to invade a lethal silence of centuries. Over the valley's rim, a, a wan, waning crescent moon peered through the noisome vapors that seemed to emanate from unheard-of catacombs and by its feeble wavering beams I could distinguish a repellent array of antique slabs, urns, cenotaphs, and mausoleum fa facades, all crumbling, moss-grown, and moisture-stained, and partly concealed by the gross luxuriance of the unhealthy vegetation. 
My first vivid impression of my own presence in this terrible necropolis concerns the act of pausing with Warren before a certain half-obliterated sepulchre and of throwing down some burdens which we seem to have been carrying. I now observed that I had with me an electric lantern and two spades, whilst my companion was supplied with a, a similar lantern and a portable telephone outfit. No word was uttered, for the spot and the task seemed well seemed known to us, and without delay we seized our spades and commenced to clear away the grass, weeds, and drifted earth from the flat, archaic mortuary. After uncovering the entire surface, which consisted of three immense granite slabs, we stepped back some distance to survey the charnel scene, and Warren appeared to make some mental calculations. Then he returned to the sepulcher, and using his spade as a lever, sought to pry up the slab lying nearest a stony ruin, which may have been a monument in its day. He did not succeed, and motioned to me to come to his assistance. Finally, our combined strength loosened the stone, and we raised and tipped to one side. The removal of the slab revealed a black aperture, from which Rustin effluence of miasmal gases so nauseous that we started back in horror. After an interval, however, we approached the pit again, and found the exhalations less unbearable. Our lanterns disclosed the top of a flight of stone steps, dripping with some detestable ichor of the inner earth and bordered by moist walls encrusted with nitre. And now for the first time since, uh, now for the first time my memory records verbal discourse, Warren addressing me at length in his mellow tenor voice, a voice singularly unperturbed by our awesome surroundings. I'm sorry to have to ask you to stay on the surface, he said, but it would be a crime to let anyone with your frail nerves go down there. You can't imagine, even from what you have read and from what I've told you, the things I shall have to see and do. It's fiendish work, Carter, and I doubt if any man without ironclad sensibilities could ever see it through and come up alive and sane. I don't wish to offend you, and heaven knows I'd be glad enough to have you with me, but the responsibility is in a certain sense mine, and I couldn't drag a bundle of nerves like you down to probable death or madness. I tell you, I, you can't imagine what the thing is really like, but I promise to keep you informed over the telephone of every move. You see, I have enough wire here to reach the center of the earth and back. I can still hear in my memory these coolly spoken words, and I can still remember my remonstrances. I seemed desperately anxious to accompany my friend into those sepul sepulchral depths, yet he proved inflexibly obdurate. At one time he threatened to abandon the expedition if I remained insistent, a threat which proved effective since he alone held the key to the thing. All this I can still remember, though I no longer know what manner of thing we sought. After he had obtained my reluctant acquiescence into his design, Warren picked up the reel of wire and adjusted the instruments. At his nod, I took one of the latter and seated myself upon an aged, discolored gravestone close by the newly uncovered aperture. Then he shook my hand, shouldered the coil of wire, and disappeared within that indescribable ossuary. For a minute I kept sight of the glow of his lantern and heard the rustle of the wire as he laid it down after him, but the glow soon disappeared abruptly, as if a turn in the stone staircase had been encountered, and the sound died away almost as quickly. I was alone, yet bound to the unknown depths by those magic strands whose insulated surface lay green beneath the struggling beams of that waning crescent moon. In the lone silence of that hoary and deserted city of the dead, my mind conceived the most ghastly fantasies and illusions, and the grotesque shrines and monoliths seemed to assume a hideous personality, a half-sentience. 
amorphous shadows seemed to lurk in the darker recesses of the weed-choked hollow and to fit as and to flit as in some blasphemous ceremonial procession past the portals of the moldering tombs in the hillside shadows which could not have been cast by that pallid peering crescent moon i constantly consulted my watch by the light of my electric lantern and listened with feverish anxiety at the receiver of the telephone but for more than a quarter of an hour i heard nothing then a faint clicking came from the instrument and i called down to my friend in a tense voice apprehensive as i was i was nevertheless unprepared for the words which came up from that uncanny vault in accents more alarmed and quivering than any i had heard before from harley warren he who has so calmly left me a little while previously now called from below in a shaky whisper more pretentious more portentous than the loudest shriek if you could see what i am seeing i could not answer speechless i could only wait then came the frenzied tone again carter it's terrible monstrous unbelievable this time my voice did not fail me and i poured into the transmitter a flood of excited questions terrified i continued to repeat warren what is it what is it once more the voice of my friend still hoarse with fear and now apparently tinged with despair i can't tell you carter it's too utterly beyond thought i dare not tell you no man could know it and live great god i never dreamed of this stillness again save for my now incoherent torrent of shuddering inquiry then the voice of warren in a pitch of wilder consternation carter for the love of god put the slab and put back the slab and get out of this if you can quick leave everything else and make for the outside it's your only chance do as i say don't ask me to explain i heard yet was only able to repeat my frantic questions around me were the tombs and darkness and shadows below me some peril beyond the radius of the human imagination but my friend was in greater danger than i and through my fear i felt a vague resentment that he should deem me capable of deserting him under such circumstances more clicking and after a pause a piteous cry from warren beat it for god's sake put back the slab and beat it carter something in the bo something in the boyish slang of my evidently stricken companion unleashed my faculties i formed and shouted in a resolution warren brace up i'm coming down but at this offer the tone of my auditor changed to a scream of utter despair don't you can't understand it's too late my own fault put back the slab and run there's nothing else you or anyone can do now the tone changed again this time acquiring a softer quality as of hopeless resignation yet it remained tense through anxiety for me quick before it's too late i tried not to heed him tried to break through the paralysis which held me and to fulfill my vow to rush down to his aid but his next whisper found me still held inert in the chains of stark horror carter hurry it's no use you must go better one than two the slab a pause more clicking than the faint voice of warren nearly over now don't make it harder cover up those damned steps and run for your life you're losing time so long carter i won't see you again here warren's whisper swelled into a cry a cry that gradually rose to a shriek fought fraught with all the horror of the ages curse these hellish things legions <laughs> lord beat it beat it after that was silence i know not how many interminable eons i sat stupefied whispering muttering calling screaming into that telephone 
Over and over again, through those eons, I whispered and muttered, called, shouted, and screamed, Warren, Warren, answer me, are you there? And then there came to me the crowning horror of it all, the unbelievable, unthinkable, almost unmentionable thing. I have said that eons seemed to elapse after Warren shrieked forth his last despairing warning, and that my own cries now broke the hideous silence. But after a while there was a further clicking in the receiver, and I strained my ears to listen. Again I called down, Warren, are you there? And in answer heard the thing which has brought this cloud over my mind. I do not try, gentlemen, to account for that, that thing, that voice, nor can I venture to describe it in detail, since the first words took away my consciousness and created a mental blank which reaches to the time of my awakening in the hospital. Shall I say the voice was deep, hollow, gelatinous, remote, unearthly, inhuman, disembodied? What shall I say? It was the end of my experience, and is the end of my story. I heard it, and knew no more. Heard it as I sat petrified in that unknown cemetery in the hollow, amidst the crumbling stones and the falling tombs, the rank vegetation, and the miasmal vapors. Heard it well up from the innermost depths of that damnable open sepulchre as I watched amorphous, necrophagous shadows dance beneath the accursed waning moon. And this is what it said. You fool! Warren is dead! I love the just casual bringing the lights back up. Like, now I'm, ba- <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm out of drizzle mode now. <laughs> I, fed right. Dan, I fed Dan the last dab. There's Dan. How you holding up, Dan? Yep. I understand. Love you, Paul. Thank you so much for stopping by, and I will see you again tomorrow morning at uh, at uh, 10 p.m. Or 10 a.m. for me. 10 p.m. for you. Go to bed. <laughs> <laughs> so now, right. are we going to do? Uh, are we going to ask the chat what they want you to do next? Yeah, let's let's see what they want to do next. So remind us of our our remaining choices. We've got uh, we've got Guy de Maupassant. We've got Robert Block. We've got uh, Neil Gaiman. We've got one vote for Neil. We've got another vote for Neil. Christiani emphasized now in all caps. And uh, <laughs> Alan said, you've got to do the gaming. And right. then we got Melissa with gaming. I feel like, yeah, I feel like it's got to be Neil gaming. It must be time. All right. The floor is yours, my friend. All right, sir. Let's bring the lights back down. I don't have much of an intro, intro for Neil gaming. He doesn't need an intro for me. You guys know who he is. He's Neil Gaiman. He's Neil Gaiman. <laughs> all right. Click Clack the Rattle Bag by Neil Gaiman. Before you take me up to bed, will you tell me a story? Do you actually need me to take you up to bed? I asked the boy. He thought for a moment, then with intense seriousness. Yes, actually, I think you do. It's because of I, I finished my homework, and so it's my bedtime, and I am a bit scared. Not, not very scared, just a bit. But it is a very big house, and lots of times the lights don't work, and it's sort of dark. I reached over and tussled his hair. I can understand that, I said. It is a very big old house. He nodded. We were in the kitchen, where it was light and warm. I put down my magazine on the kitchen table. What kind of story would you like me to tell you? Well, he said thoughtfully, I don't think it should be too scary, because then when I go up to bed, it'll, I'll just be thinking about monsters the whole time. But if it isn't just a little bit scary, then I won't be interested. And you make up scary stories, don't you? I know she says that's what you do. 
She exaggerates. I write stories, yes. Nothing that's been published yet, though. And I write lots of different kinds of stories. But you do write scary stories. Yes. The boy looked up at me from the shadows by the door where he was waiting. Do you know any stories about Click Clack the Rattlebag? I don't think so. Those are the best sorts of stories. Did they tell them at your school? He shrugged. Sometimes. Here comes the money. What's a Click Clack the Rattlebag story? He was a precocious child and was unimpressed by his sister's boyfriend's ignorance. You could see it on his face. Everybody knows them. I don't, I said, trying not to smile. He looked at me as if he was trying to decide whether or not I was pulling his leg. He said, I think maybe you should take me up to my bedroom, and then you can tell me a story before I go to sleep, but a very not scary story because I'll be up in my dead bedroom then, and it's actually a bit dark up there too. I said, shall I leave a note for your sister telling her where we are? You can, but you'll hear when they get back. The front door is very slammy. We walked out of the warm and cozy kitchen into the hallway of the big house, where it was chilly and drafty and dark. I flicked the light switch, but nothing happened. The bulb's gone, the boy said. That always happens. Our eyes adjusted to the shadows. The moon was almost full, and the blue-white moonlight shone in through the high windows on the staircase, down into the hall. We'll be all right, I said. Yes, said the boy soberly. I'm very glad you're here. He seemed less precocious now. His hand found mine, and he held on to my fingers comfortably trustingly, as if he'd known me all his life. I felt responsible and adult. I did not know that the feeling that I had for his sister, who was my girlfriend, was love. Not yet. But I liked that the child treated me as one of the family. I felt like his big brother, and I stood taller, and if there was something unsettling about the empty house, I would not have admitted it for worlds. The stairs creaked beneath the third bare stair carpet. Click-clacks, said the boy, are the best monsters ever. Are they from television? I don't think so. I don't think many people know where they come from. Mostly they come from the dark. Good place for a monster to come? Yes. We walked along the upper corridor in the shadows, walking from a patch of moonlight to patch of moonlight. It really was a big house. I wished I had a flashlight. They come from the dark, said the boy, holding on to my hand. I think probably they're made of dark, and they come in when you don't pay attention. That's when they come in, and then they take you back to their... not nests what's a word that's like nests but not house no not a house lair he was silent then i think that's the word yes lair he squeezed my hand he stopped talking right so they take people who don't pay attention back to their lair and what do they do then your monsters they suck all the blood out of you like vampires he snorted Vampires don't suck all the blood out of you. They only drink a little bit, just to keep them going and, you know, flying around. Click-clacks are much scarier than vampires. I'm not scared of vampires, I told him. Me neither. I'm not scared of vampires either. Do you want to know what click-clacks do? They drink you, said the boy. Like a Coke? Coke is very bad for you, said the boy. If you put a tooth in Coke... In the morning, it'll be dissolved into nothing. That's how bad Coke is for you, and why you must always clean your teeth every night. I'd heard the Coke story as a boy and had been told as an adult that it wasn't true, but it was certain that a lie which promoted dental hygiene was a good lie, and I let it pass. Click-clacks drink you, said the boy. First they bite you, and then you go all 
ishy inside and then your meat and your brains and everything except your bones and your skin turns into a wet milkshakey stuff and then the click clack sucks it out through the holes where your eyes used to be that is disgusting i told him would you make it up we'd reached the last flight of stairs all the way into the big house no i can't believe you kids make up stuff like that you didn't ask me about the rattle bag he said right what's the rattle bag well, he said, sagely, soberly, a small voice from the darkness beside me. Once you're just bones and skin, they hang you up on a hook and you rattle in the wind. So what do these click-clacks look like? Even as I asked him, I wish I could take the question back and leave it unasked. I thought huge spidery creatures like the one in the shower that morning. I'm afraid of spiders. I was relieved when the boy said, they look like what you aren't expecting what you aren't paying attention to. We were climbing wooden steps now. I held on to the railing on my left, held his hand with my right as he walked beside me. It smelled like dust and old wood, that high in the house. The boy's tread was certain, though, even though the moonlight was scarce. Do you know what story you're going to tell me to put me to bed? He asked. It doesn't actually have to be scary. Not really. Maybe you could tell me what you did this evening. Uh, what did you do? And that won't make much of a story for you. My girlfriend just moved into a new place on the edge of town. She inherited it from an aunt or someone. It's a very big and very old. I'm going to spend my very first night with her. So I've been waiting for an hour or so for her and her housemates to come back with wine and an Indian takeaway. See, said the boy. There was that precocious amusement again. But all kids can be insufferable sometimes when they think they know something you don't. It's probably good for them. You know all that, but you don't think. You just let your brain fill in the gaps. He pushed open the door to the attic room. It was perfectly dark now, but the opening door disturbed the air, and I heard things rattle gently, like dry bones in thin bags in the slight wind. Click, clack, click, clack, like that. I would have pulled away then if I could, but small, firm fingers pulled me forward unrelentingly into the dark yeah big shout out and uh i mean that's just amazing you know to reach out to neil gaiman and you know get permission to read the story live on the air that's absolutely wonderful um up to neil. equally as wonderful is uh melissa from brook reading with a 25 dollar donation in there uh, during the story thank you so 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 much melissa thank you mel brooks they used to call this guy the doctor of love for a good reason. Who, Sean? <laughs> uh, it's true. He's the doctor of lust. <laughs> How dare you? So we've got Guy Demopassant, and we've got... Uh, Robert Block. Robert Block, ladies and gentlemen. Over in the chat, let us know, Guy or Robert, which one do you want next? And thank you so, so much for being here again, Sean. Um, I love seeing oh, you. Thank you for having me. I love I hanging love out with you. You're amazing. The feeling is mutual. We have uh, Chris Yaney, $25 donation, snow, glass, apples in its entirety next year. What is that? Chris Yaney, stop being vague. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we have one vote for Guy. We have one vote for Robert. So it is tied even. Currently, Let's get a tiebreaker. We got. We are also, ladies and gentlemen, we are 
pushing on. Uh, we're less than $400 away from $16,000, uh, which is $1,000 past our push goal. And uh, once we hit 16000 it will officially mean that we have raised more money than we did last year for live stream mm. for the cure uh uh it's neil gaiman he says snow white from the stepmother's point of view uh, i guess i see i see yes uh christini do you have a preference of gee or robert i'm gonna vote gee all right let's do it let's do it all right everybody we'll dim the lights back down here so this I, next I love story. the atmosphere it's it's beautiful <laughs> Uh, this next story is uh, by Guy de Maupassant, as we said. It's called The Hand. And The Hand was first published in 1883 in uh, de Maupassant's short story collection, uh, Comte de la Becasse. I don't know how to pronounce that. I was actually hoping that this would have been published in his 1882 collection entitled Mademoiselle Fifi, but no such luck. Um, but I did want to say Mademoiselle Fifi. Uh, so mission accomplished there. So now on to the next story. The Hand by Guy de Maupassant. All were crowding around Monsieur Bemutier, uh, the judge, who was giving his opinion about the St. Cloud mystery. For a month, this inexplicable crime had been the talk of Paris. Nobody could make head or tail of it. Monsieur Bemutier, standing with his back to the fireplace, was talking, citing the evidence, discussing the various theories, but arriving at no conclusion. Some women had risen in order to get nearer to him, and were standing with their eyes fastened on the clean-shaven face of the judge, who was saying such weighty things. They were shaking and trembling, moved by fear and curiosity, and by the eager and insatiable desire for the horrible, which haunts every soul, which haunts the soul of every woman. One of them, paler than the others, said during a pause, It's terrible. It verged on the supernatural. The truth will never be known. The judge turned to her. True, madame it is likely that the actual facts will never be discovered. As for the word supernatural, which you have just used, it has nothing to do with the matter. We are in the presence of a very cleverly conceived and executed crime, so well enshrouded in mystery that we cannot disentangle it from the involved circumstances which surround it. But once I had to take charge of an affair in which the uncanny seemed to play a part, in fact, the case became so confused that it had to be given up. Several women exclaimed at once, Oh, tell us about it. Monsieur Bimutier smiled in a dignified manner, as a judge should, and went on. Do not think, however, that I, for one minute, ascribed anything in the case to supernatural influences. I believe only in normal causes. But if, instead of using the word supernatural to express what we do not understand, we were simply to make use of the word inexplicable, it would be much better. At any rate, in the affair of which I am about to tell you, it is especially the surrounding preliminary circumstances which impressed me. Here are the facts. I was at the time a judge at Ahasio, a little white city on the edge of a bay which is surrounded by high mountains. The majority of these cases which came up before me concerned vendettas. There are some that are superb, dramatic, ferocious, heroic. We find there the most beautiful causes for revenge of which one could dream, enmities hundreds of years old, quieted for but a, a time, but never extinguished, abominable stratagems, murders becoming massacres and almost deeds of glory. For two years I heard of nothing but the price of blood, of this terrible Corsican prejudice which compels revenge for insults meted out to the offending person and all his descendants and relatives. I had seen an old man, children, cousins, murdered. My head was full of these stories. One day I learned that an Englishman had just hired a little villa at the end of the bay for several years. 
he had brought with him a French servant, whom he had engaged on the way at Marseille. Soon this peculiar person, living alone, only going out to hunt and fish, aroused a widespread interest. He never spoke to anyone, never went into the town. And every morning he would practice for an hour or so with his revolver and rifle. Legends were built up around him. It was said that he was some high personage, fleeing from his fatherland for political reasons. Then it was affirmed that he was hiding in, uh, that he was in hiding after having committed some abominable crime. Some particularly horrible circumstances were even mentioned. In my judicial position, I thought it necessary to get some information about this man, but it was impossible to learn anything. He called himself Sir John Rowell. I therefore had to be satisfied with watching him as closely as I could, but I could see nothing suspicious about his actions. However, as rumors about him were growing and becoming more widespread, I decided to see this stranger for myself, and I began to hunt regularly in the neighborhood of his grounds. For a long time, I watched without finding an opportunity. At last it came to me in the shape of a partridge, which I shot and killed right in front of the Englishman. My dog fetched it for me, but, taking the bird, I went at once to Sir John Rowell, and, begging his pardon, asked him to accept it. He was a big man, with red hair and beard, very tall, very broad, a kind of calm and polite Hercules. He had nothing of the so-called British stiffness, and in a broad English accent, he thanked me warmly for my attention. At the end of a month, we had had five or six conversations. One night at last, as I was passing before his door, I saw him in the garden, seated astride a chair, smoking his pipe. I bowed, and he invited me to come in and have a glass of beer. I needed no urging. He received me with the most punctilious English courtesy, sang the praises of France and of Corsica, and declared that he was quite in love with this country. Then, with great caution and under the guise of a vivid interest, I asked him a few questions about his life and his plans. He answered without embarrassment, telling me that he, he, had, telling me that he had traveled a great deal in Africa, in the Indies, in America. He added, laughing, I have had many adventures. Then I turned the conversation on hunting, and he gave me the most curious details on hunting the hippopotamus, the tiger, the elephant, and even the gorilla. I said, are all these animals dangerous? He smiled. Oh no, man is the worst. And he laughed a good broad laugh, the wholesome laugh of a contented Englishman. I have also frequently been man-hunting. Then he began to talk about weapons, and invited me me to come in and see the different makes of guns. His parlor was draped in black, black silk, embroidered in gold. Big yellow flowers as brilliant as fire were worked on, were worked on dark material. He said, it is a Japanese material. But in the middle of the widest panel, a strange thing attracted my attention. A black object stood out against a square of red velvet. I went up to it. It was a hand, a human hand, not the clean white hand of a skeleton, but a dried black hand with yellow nails, the muscles exposed and traces of old blood on the bones, which were cut off as clean as though it had been chopped off with an axe near the middle of the forearm. Around the wrist, an enormous iron chain riveted and soldered to this unclean member fastened it to the wall by a ring strong enough to hold an elephant in leash. I asked, what is that? The Englishman answered quietly, that is my best enemy. It comes from America, too. The bones were severed by sword, and the skin cut off with a sharp stone, and dried in the sun for a week. I touched these human remains, which must have, must have belonged to a giant. 
The uncommonly long fingers were attached by enormous tendons, which still had pieces of skin hanging to them in places. This hand was terrible to see. It made one think of some savage vengeance. I said, this man must have been very strong. The Englishman answered quietly, Yes, I was stronger than he. I put this chain to hold him. I thought he was joking. I said, the chain is useless now. The hand won't run away. Sir John Rowell answered seriously, It always wants to go away. This chain is needed. I glanced at him quickly, questioning his face, and asked myself, is he an insane man or a practical joker? But his face remained inscrutable, calm, friendly. I turned to other subjects and admired his rifles. However, I noticed that he kept three loaded revolvers in the room, as though constantly in fear of some attack. I paid him several calls. Then I did not go anymore. People had become used to his presence, and everybody had lost interest in him. A whole year rolled by. One morning, toward the end of November, my servant awoke me and announced that Sir John Rowell had been murdered during the night. Half an hour later, I entered the Englishman's house together with the police commissioner and the captain of the gendarme. The servant, bewildered and in despair, was crying before the door. At first I suspected this man, but he was innocent. The guilty party could never be found. On entering Sir John's parlor, I noticed the body stretched out on its back in the middle of the room. His vest was torn. The sleeve of his jacket had been pulled off. Everything pointed to a violent struggle. The Englishman had been strangled. His face was black, swollen, frightful, and seemed to express a terrible fear. He held something between his teeth and his neck, pierced by five or six holes, which looked as though they had been made by some iron instrument, was covered with I'm blood. I'm so happy I have a you as my best us. friend. He examined the finger marks on the neck for a long time and then made this strange announcement. It looks as though he's been strangled by a skeleton. A cold chill seemed to run down my back, and I looked over to where I had formerly seen the terrible hand. It was no longer there. The chain was hanging down, broken. I bent over the dead man, and in his contracted mouth I found one of the fingers of this vanished hand, cut or rather sawed off by the teeth down to the second knuckle. Then the investigation began. Nothing could be discovered. No door, window, or piece of furniture had been forced. The two watchdogs had not been aroused from their sleep. Here, in a few words, is the testimony of the servant. For a month his master had seemed excited. He had received many letters, which he would immediately burn. Often in a fit of passion, when approached, uh, which approached madness, he had taken a switch and struck wildly at this dried hand riveted to the wall, and which had disappeared, no one knows how, at the very hour of the crime. He would go to bed very late and carefully lock himself in. He always kept weapons within reach. Often at night he would talk loudly as though he were quarreling with someone. That night, somehow, he had made no noise, and it was only on going to the open windows that the servant had found Sir John murdered. He suspected no one. I communicated I knew of the dead man, what I knew of the dead man to the judges and public officials. Throughout the whole island, a minute investigation was carried on. Nothing could be found out. One night, about three months after the crime, I had a terrible nightmare. I seemed to see the horrible hand running over my curtains and walls like an immense scorpion or spider. Three times I awoke and three times I went to sleep again. Three times I saw the hideous object galloping around my room and moving its fingers like legs. The following day the hand was brought to me, found in the cemetery on the grave of Sir John Rowell, who had been buried there because we had been un unable to find his family. The first finger was missing. Ladies, there is my story. I know nothing more.
The women, deeply stirred, were pale and trembling. One of them exclaimed, But that is neither a climax nor an explanation. We will be unable to sleep unless you give us your opinion of what occurred. The judge smiled severely. Oh, ladies, I shall certainly spoil your terrible dreams. I simply believe that the legitimate owner of the hand was not dead, that he came to get it with his remaining one. But I don't know how. It was a kind of vendetta. No, it can't be that. And the judge, still smiling, said, Didn't I tell you that my explanation would not satisfy you? Thank you so, so much, Artemis, for raiding with a party of two during the story there. And thank you so, so much to the Velvet Drizzle. Thank you, Nicholas Alan, you beautiful bastard from Interrupted Tales, $25. He said, absolutely fantastic. I could not agree more. Uh, no, God, we you love you. I think I, I think I may be able to pull off this last one if we got time still. We got time. I mean, you, it's only Brad coming up, so nobody cares. Oh, well, nobody's worried about that. <laughs> He's cursing my name right now. <laughs> All right. Well, I can I can I can run right into it if you want. Let's do it. All right. Bring the lights back down. So this next one comes from Robert Block, and I've been saying his name Block, but it's actually C H that it ends with. So. Uh, but my mouth's getting a little bit dry. So Bloch, you know, whatever. Anyway, uh, let's get a little bit of a background on Robert Bloch. He was born in 1917 in Chicago, moved to Milwaukee at the age of 12, saw the Phantom of the Opera alone and at night when he was eight years old, which gave him nightmares for two years, but also got him into horror, turned him into a bit of a horror guy, if you will. Uh, he was a big fan of H.P. Lovecraft as a boy and actually struck up a correspondence with him for a time uh, and also wrote several stories expanding the uh, Cthulhu mythos. Uh, wrote several stories for pulp magazines, most notably Weird Tales, also including Amazing Stories, Other Worlds, Imaginative Tales, Fantastic, and he's most well-known for writing the novel Psycho, which of course is the source material for Alfred Hitchcock's most well-known film, Psycho. Block also wrote Psycho 2 and Psycho House, the books, not the movies, uh, which I have read but have very little recollection of. Uh, he died in 1994 at the age of 77 after writing hundreds of short stories and about 30 novels and also wrote several screenplays that no one has ever heard of. So, uh, the story that I have for you tonight is called Lucy Comes to Stay. And let's get right to it. Lucy Comes to Stay by Robert Block. And I actually, let me jump in here before I start. This is told from the perspective of uh, women. So it's in the voice of women. Uh, there are no male characters who speak here. So uh, pardon the uh, uh, the uh, the women character. Channel that estrogen, Ennis. <laughs> I'll do what I can. All right, here we go. You can't go on this way. Lucy kept her voice down low because she knew the nurse had uh, she knew the nurse had her room just down the hall from mine, and I wasn't supposed to see any visitors. But George is doing everything he can, poor dear. I hate to think of what all those doctors and specialists are costing him, and the sanatorium bill, too. And now that nurse, Miss Higgins, is staying here every day. It won't do any good. You know it won't. Lucy didn't sound like she was arguing with me. She knew. That's because Lucy is smarter than I am. Lucy wouldn't have started the drinking and gotten into such a mess in the first place. So it was about time I listened to what she said. Look, Vi, she murmured. I hate to tell you this. You aren't well, you know. 
but you're going to find out one of these days anyway, and you might as well hear it from me. What is it, Lucy? About George and the doctors. They don't think you're going to get well. She paused. They don't want you to. Oh, Lucy, listen to me, little fool. Why do you suppose they sent you to that sanatorium in the first place? They said it was to take the cure. So you took it. All right, you're cured then. But you'll notice that you still have the doctor coming every day, and George makes you stay here in your room, and Miss Higgins, who's supposed to be a special nurse, you know what she is, don't you? She's a guard. I couldn't say anything. I just sat there and blinked. I wanted to cry, but I couldn't, because deep down, I knew that Lucy was right. Just try to get out of here, Lucy said. You'll see how fast she locks the door on you. And all that talk about special diets and rest doesn't fool me. Look at yourself. You're as well as I am. You ought to be getting out, seeing people, visiting your friends. But I have no friends, I reminded her. Not after that party, not after what I did. It's a lie, Lucy nodded. That's what George wants you to think. Well, you have hundreds of friends, Vi. They still love you. They tried to see you at the hospital, and George wouldn't let them in. They sent flowers to the sanatorium, and George told the nurses to burn them. He did? He told the nurses to burn the flowers? Of course, Vi. It's about time you face the truth. George wants them to think you're sick. He wants you to think he wants you to think you're sick. Why? Because then he can put you away for good. Not in a private sanatorium, but in the No. I began to shake. I couldn't stop shaking. It was ghastly, but it proved something. They told me at the sanatorium, the doctors told me that if I took the cure, I wouldn't get the shakes anymore, or the dreams, or any of the other things. Yet here it was, I was shaking again. <clears throat> Shall I tell you some more? Lucy whispered. Shall I tell you what they're putting in your food? Shall I tell you about George and Miss Higgins? But she's older than he is, and besides, he'd never... Lucy last laughed. Stop it, I yelled. All right, but don't yell, you little fool. You want Miss Higgins to come in? She thinks I'm taking a nap. She gave me a sedative. Lucky I dumped it out, Lucy frowned. Vi, I've got to get you away from here. There isn't much time. She was right. There wasn't much time. Seconds, minutes, hours, days, weeks. How long it had been since I'd had a drink? We'll sneak off, Lucy said. We could take a room together where they wouldn't find us. Rooms cost money. You have that fifty dollars George gave you for a party dress. Why, Lucy, I said. How did you know that? You told me ages ago, dear. Poor thing. You don't remember things very well, do you? All the more reason for trusting me. I nodded. I could trust Lucy, even though she was responsible, in a way, for me starting to drink. She just thought that it would cheer me up when George brought all his high-class friends to the house and we went out to impress his clients. Lucy had tried to help. I could trust her. I must trust her. We can, see, we can leave as soon as Miss Higgins goes tonight, Lucy was saying. We'll wait until George is asleep, huh? Why not get dressed now? I'll come back for you. I got dressed. It isn't easy to get dressed when you have the shakes, but I did it. I even put on some makeup and trimmed my hair a little with the big scissors. Then I looked at myself in the mirror and said out loud, Why, you can't tell, can you? Of course not, said Lucy. You look radiant, positively radiant. I stood there, smiling. The sun was going down, just shining through the window on the scissors in a way that hurt my eyes, and all at once I was so sleepy. George will be here soon, and Miss Higgins will leave, Lucy said. I'd better go now. Why don't you rest until I come for you? Yes, I said. You'll be very careful, won't you? Very careful, Lucy whispered, and tiptoed out quietly. I lay down on the bed, until I, and then I was sleeping, really sleeping, for the first time in weeks, 
sleeping so the scissors wouldn't hurt my eyes the way George hurt me inside when he wanted to shut me up in the asylum so he and Miss Higgins could make love on my bed and laugh at me the way they all laughed, except Lucy, and she would take care of me. And she knew when I, she knew what to do. And I could trust her when George came and I must sleep and sleep and nobody can blame you for what you think in your sleep or do in your sleep. It was all right until I had the dreams. Even then I didn't really worry about them because a dream is only a dream. And when I was drunk, I had lots of dreams. When I woke up, I had the shakes again, but it was Lucy shaking me, standing there in the dark, shaking me. I looked around and saw that the door to my room was open, but Lucy didn't bother to whisper. She stood there with the scissors in her hand and called to me. Come on, let's hurry. What are you doing with the scissors, I asked. Cutting the telephone wire, silly. I got into the kitchen after Miss Higgins left and dumped some of that sedative into George's coffee. Remember I told you the plan? I couldn't remember now, but I knew it was all right. Lucy and I went out to, through the hall, past George's room, and he never stirred. Then we went downstairs and out the front door, and the streetlights hurt my eyes, and Lucy made me hurry right along, though. We took a streetcar around the corner. That was the difficult part, getting away. Once we were out of the neighborhood, there'd be no worry. The wires were cut. The lady at the rooming house on the south side said she didn't know about the wires being cut, or she didn't know about the wires being cut. She didn't know about me either, because Lucy got the room. Lucy marched in bold as brass and laid my $50 down on the desk. The rent was twelve fifty a week in advance, and Lucy didn't even ask to see the room. I guess that's why the landlady wasn't worried about baggage. We got upstairs and locked the door, and then I had the shakes again. Lucy said, Vi, cut it out, but I can't help it. What'll I do now, Lucy? What'll I do? Why did I ever... Shut up! Lucy opened my purse and pulled something out. I'd been wondering why my purse felt so heavy, but I never dreamed about the secret. She held the secret up. It glittered under the light, like the scissors, only this was a nice glittering, a golden glittering. A whole pint, I gasped. Where did you get it? From the cupboard downstairs, naturally. You know George still keeps the stuff around. I slipped it into your purse just in case. I had the shakes, but I got that bottle open in ten seconds. One of my fingernails broke, and then the stuff was burning and warming and softening. Pig, said Lucy. You know I had to have it, I whispered. That's why you brought it. I don't like to see you drink, Lucy answered. I never drink, and I don't like to see you hang one on either. Please, Lucy, just this once. Why can't you take a shot and leave it alone? That's all I ask. Just this once, Lucy, I have to. I won't sit here and watch you make a spectacle of yourself. You know what always happens, another mess. I took another gulp. The bottle was half empty. I did all I could for you, Vi, but if you don't stop now, I'm going. That made me pause. You couldn't do that to me. I need you, Lucy. Until I'm straightened out anyway. Lucy laughed, the way I didn't like. Straightened out? That's a hot one. Talking about straightening out with a bottle in your hand. It's no use, Vi. Here I do everything I can for you. I stop at nothing to get you away, and you're off on another. Please, you know I can't help it. Oh, yes, you can help it, Vi, but you don't want to. You've always had to make a choice, you know, George or the bottle, me or the bottle, and the bottle always wins. I think deep down inside, you hate George. You hate me. You're my best friend. Nuts. Lucy talked vulgar sometimes when she got really mad, and she was mad now. It made me so nervous I had another drink. Oh, I'm good enough for you when you're in trouble or have nobody else around to talk to. I'm good enough to lie for you, pull you out of your messes. I've never been good enough for your friends, for George. I can't even win over a bottle of rock-cut whiskey. It's no use, Vi. What I've done for you today, you'll never know. And it isn't enough. Keep your lousy whiskey. I'm going. I know I started to cry. I tried to get up, but the room was turning round and round. Then Lucy was walking out the door, and I dropped the bottle, and the light kept shining the way it did on the scissors, and I closed my eyes, and 
dropped after the bottle to the floor. When I woke up, they were all pestering me, the landlady and the doctor and Miss Higgins and the man who said he was a policeman. I wondered if Lucy had gone up to them and betrayed me, but when I asked the doctor, said no, they just discovered me through a routine checkup on hotels and rooming houses after they found George's body in his bed with my scissors in his throat. All at once I knew what Lucy had done, why she had ran out on me that way. She knew they'd find me and call it murder. So I told them about her and how it must have happened. I even figured out how Lucy managed to get my fingerprints on the scissors. But Miss Higgins said she'd never seen Lucy in my house. And the landlady told a lie and said I had registered for the room alone. And the man from the police just laughed when I kept begging him to find Lucy and make her tell the truth. Only the doctor seemed to understand. And when we were alone in the little room, he asked me about her and, and what she looked like. And I told him. Then he brought over a mirror and held it up and asked me if I could see her. And sure enough, she was standing right beside me, behind me, laughing. I could see her in the mirror, and I told the doctor so, and he said yes, he thought he understood now. So it was all right after all. Even when I got the shakes then and dropped the mirror so that the little jagged pieces hurt my eyes to look at, it was all right. Lucy was back with me now, and she wouldn't ever go away anymore. She'd stay with me forever. I knew that. I knew it, because even though the light hurt my eyes, Lucy began to laugh. After a minute, I began to laugh too. And then the two of us were standing there laughing together. Couldn't stop even when the doctor went away. We just stood there against the bars, Lucy and I, laughing like crazy. I mean, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. Not one, not two, not three, but four stories from the the, the absolutely delicious Velvet Drizzle. Let's get some love over in the chat. Uh, for, for the absolutely, there we go. Here we go. Drew Hallam's song is what my sexy voice wants to be with a $10 donation. Uh, thank you so, so much, Drew. Thank you so, so much, everybody. Uh, just, I mean, I love, I just love, I just sit back. I just listen. I just relax. I like to give you a break sometimes during this live stream, Nick. I know you work hard during this thing. You, you, you spend a lot of hours on this. I, I give you a break, you know, you just listen to some stories. I love it. It's 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 absolutely incredible. Uh, before you run away, let the let the people out there know where they can find Ink and Ash. Well, folks, you can find me on any of the socials at Ink and Ash Pod. It's much easier to spell than my last name, so uh, you can find me any on any of those. Um, and yeah, come and hit me up. Come come check out the show if you like. Also, subscribe on his Patreon because it's worth it. Okay. More stories. That's Ink and Ash, formerly stories of yours, your and yours. <laughs> now known That's as correct. Ink and now Ash. known as Ink and Ash. No longer upcoming. <laughs> it's just um, no it, it's to be known as. It's always so so amazing to to have you on live stream for the cure. Even any time, honest to God, any time I get to share a microphone with you, uh, it is always a treat and a privilege. Thank you so so much, sir, and I hope you have an amazing night. Thank you, man. Thank you for having me. This is my third year doing it. Love doing it every year. I appreciate it. Thank you so, so much. Have a wonderful night. Uh, we're going to say goodbye to Mr. Sean Ennis. Round of applause. I 100% agree. <laughs> <laughs>